0: So, yeah, let's read from Matthew 13 and uh, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's go. So these verses are a part of a, a larger passage where Jesus is um, telling a number of parables or um, illustrations. He talks um, alterna- alternately to uh, a large crowd um, where he says that he's saying everything in parables, um, but then he also um, talks to his disciples on their own and he gives some explanation of some of, these, uh, some of the parables and a few more stories. So these generally start with, um, the kingdom of heaven is like. So to me, that's always seemed a bit of a a baffling phrase, I suppose. I think it helps to remember a few things. So because of the the sort of Jewish reverence for God, they didn't like to say the name of God unnecessarily. um, And so there was often a kind of euphemism for God in this case, instead of saying the Kingdom of God, they would say the Kingdom of heaven. Um, jesus does kind of use both of them interchangeably um, so um, so yeah, so he is talking about God when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, but um, I suppose what I find confusing is when you look at all these different parables and you put them um, side by side, jesus says um, uh, he, he uses it in quite a broad way he can mean Life in God, it can mean the life of faith, the gospel message, and kind of all the blessings that come with that. Um, uh, and he uses the kingdom of heaven to mean all of those things. Really, uh, I suppose it means God's way is like, or the things of God are like. But but when you put them all side by side, he says the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, some yeast, a merchant, a net, some treasure, the master of a house. How on earth can, can it be all of those things? How are they the same thing? And I think the best way to think of, of it is, is more to say the kingdom of heaven is like this and then he tells a story. So it's not that the kingdom of heaven is necessarily the first thing in the story. It, you know We can't say it's definitely the kingdom of heaven is the treasure or the pearl or whatever. It's just this is illustrating some kingdom values. This story illustrates something of, of who God is and what his values are. So what's Jesus saying about God's values in these stories? I think we can take the two of them, the, uh, the treasure and the pearl, together as being a repetition of, of the same message. A man finds treasure in a field, he covers it up and goes and sells all he has to buy the field. And, uh, and then he has the treasure, obviously. Um, and a merchant finds a pearl of great value and sells all that he has to obtain it. So what do the treasure and the pearl represent, and who is the man or the merchant? Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't tell us like he helpfully does with some of the other parables, um, but I think there are two ways of interpreting it, and, and both of them give us some helpful insights into God's values. Um, as an aside, I suppose, it's a, when, you, when I read this passage, I think, well, this guy's got some pretty dubious morals he goes and finds some treasure in a field and uh, he hasn't bought the field yet, it's not his he knows there's treasure in it but he goes and hides it, buys it for presumably a cheap price and then goes and, and takes the treasure and uh, it is in a set, this kind of thing was a source of debate um, at the time uh, and there is some Jewish law surrounding it that says that um, when you buy a field that you get whatever is necessary to the field as part of it and I think it's pretty borderline to suggest that the, the box of treasure that you find in the field is, is necessary to the field. But, yeah, it's by the by, because Jesus often uses you know, uh, stories of, of people with fairly dubious morals. When you think about the, um, the manager who's about to get sacked and he goes and writes off all the debts before he gets sacked um, so that everybody loves him and, and they're all nice to him afterwards, and you think, well, that's pretty... You know, But actually, there's a point to it, and we're not, in a sense, don't look too deeply into uh, the morals of the story. You can debate it with Jewish scholars if you like. So, yeah, there are two ways that we could look at it. Firstly, we could see ourselves as the man who's finding the treasure, and therefore the treasure is, is God, his relationship with God, his truth and his, his blessings and eternal life. And certainly, if we look at the other parables around it, the sower, the weeds, the net. They're all focusing on our response to, to Jesus' message. And Matthew frames that this whole parable's passage in Matthew's, Matthew 13 between the Pharisees coming and challenging him and saying, you know, we don't really believe you're, you're the son of God and we think you're, you're working for the devil. Um, and then after, after this passage is when he goes to Nazareth and, and the people reject him there. So the context is one of of choosing or rejecting Jesus and his message, which is the treasure or the pearl. But in order to get to that decision point, the man needs to find the treasure, the merchant needs to spot the pearl of great value, and neither of these things are easy. The treasure's buried. There's a series on telly called Detectorists, some of you might know that a lot of my illustrations come from TV and might suggest that I watch too much telly, to which I'd say, yes, you're probably right. Um, anyway, this programme uh, its about a group of what can only describe, be described as fairly nerdy people who, who spend their free time scouring the fields of Suffolk with metal detectors. Obviously, real detectorists are much cooler. Although they're fairly successful at finding bottle tops and ring pulls they, they very rarely find anything of value um, despite often being very close to it they start, they, sometimes they'll sort of show this uh, cross section and you'll see this lovely piece of treasure about a foot away from where they are and then they think "Oh, we'll give up for the day and go home so it's, it's not an easy job um, but as little as I know about metal detecting I know even less about pearls I've never bought one Sorry, Ali. Even even on Valentine's. Um, but I have read up on them. <laughs> apparently, pearls are made when oysters basically get something stuck in them, like a bit of grit. So they're a sort of unnatural growth and an oyster wart, if you will. So sounds, sounds appealing. Um, you know, if you like that kind of thing. But when the, when the divers go searching for these oysters, apparently it takes them about... They have to open about 2,000 oysters before they find a single pearl that's, that's usable. Nowadays, they can make pearls artificially, so they get a piece of grit or whatever it is, and they place it in, a, in an oyster, and it produces a lovely pearl. But in Jesus' time, they, they only had the natural ones, and so they were very rare, and they were highly prized. So Julius Caesar... Um, shortly before this, it had limited the wearing of pearls to the ruling classes because it was seen as a, um, you know, a particularly special upper-class kind of thing. And actually, because of overfishing now, um, natural pearls are, are probably uh, almost as rare as they were then, so um, we could perhaps equate the, their value now uh, to, to in Jesus' time, even though we can find artificial pearls all kinds of places. So... Uh, These pearl earrings, apparently recently sold for $3.3 million, so it's pretty valuable. But uh, it takes a real expert to be able to tell a genuine natural pearl. They'll look at it with a magnifying glass, they'll look at how the light reflects on it, at the surface imperfections, they even rub it on their teeth to see how gritty it is, because apparently a real pearl is gritty. Um... I looked at quite a few bits of jewellery when I was in India last week, Um, but to be honest, I I can't tell the difference between a ruby and a piece of red plastic, so I'm not an expert. Um, So Jesus has just spoken to his disciples about why he uses parables, because the knowledge about the kingdom has been given to the disciples, but not to others. Phil Moore says that the parables are meant to conceal more than they reveal, which to me, seems an odd way to go about. But as I've said, the parables here in this, in this passage are particularly about our response to God's message and about how he sort of separates out uh, those who are chosen to understand the message. Many people would have walked over the treasure without knowing it was there. Many people would have seen a priceless pearl and not been able to distinguish it from any other. Perhaps that's where you're at today. Perhaps you've strolled many times across the field of church, maybe an alpha course, or just chatting with your Christian friends, maybe, maybe even reading the Bible and trying to see what's in there, but you're thinking, I don't get it. Where's the treasure? Well, Proverbs 2 says, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver... And search for it as for hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. None of us here are geniuses. We didn't use our incredible powers of deduction to work it out. Jesus' disciples certainly were no geniuses, they were pretty dull at times. But Jesus says to them, To you it's been given, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it hasn't been given. It comes from God. And if you haven't found it yet, ask him. He has the treasure map. Like at the end of Shawshank Redemption. See, I don't just watch telly, films as well. Um, So, does anybody remember this bit? Yeah? So, this is red, and... uh, Uh, Andy, who's the guy who escapes, um, gives him some instructions before he leaves prison. He says, if you get out, go to a certain farm outside the town of Buxton in Maine, look for a field with a big oak tree at the end of a stone wall, find a large volcanic rock that seems out of place, and look under it. Paul prays for those in Laodicea um, that they might have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ in which are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge this treasure is found in Christ and nowhere else the instructions didn't say look under any tree next to any town and find whatever rock you like and look under it and there'll be some treasure there because that would be ridiculous but that that's the way that some people go about it nowadays You know, they think, well, it doesn't really matter where you look as long as you're earnest, as long as you try hard and you're looking hard enough, uh, you know, you'll find it. But actually, you, you won't find it anywhere else except in Christ. Peter says to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But finding the treasure, spotting the pearl, isn't the end of the story. There's a decision to be made. The man who finds the treasure had the choice to say well, it's a very expensive field. I've got a lot of nice stuff and I'm not sure this treasure's going to be worth it. I mean, maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. So what what if we're at that stage, as some of the disciples were, where we do see the treasure or the pearl and we're just trying to assess its value and think, do we really want to sell all that we have? Like the rich man who comes to Jesus in... Matthew 19 Jesus says go sell sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me but it says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions we don't know what his final decision was but he was there just trying to weigh it up now Jesus isn't necessarily calling us to a life of poverty he promises to provide everything that we need in this lifetime But he's saying that there's more to live for than that. And he promises that whatever you give up, it'll be worth it. So it says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And that inheritance is guaranteed by the Spirit in our hearts. God's not like some scammer who, who's asking you to give up your life savings on the vague promise of some sort of future reward. He guarantees it, and if you put your trust in him, he will put his Spirit in you and give you that assurance. For many of us, it may be the case that we've made that decision in our heads, but maybe we're holding something back like Ananias and Sapphira did just a little something just, just in case, you know, a backup plan to be honest I think that's where I'm at and I think I've really felt God speaking to me from this passage and um, I found myself asking am I fully committed am I really throwing all my eggs in one basket am I, or you know, am I hedging my bets what decisions would I make if I genuinely believed everything I read in the Bible It's not always about going somewhere radical and uh, selling all that you have, but, but where are you putting your trust? What do your actions or inactions say about your goal in life? What gets you angry? Do these moments show up things that matter to you? Many people in our society see zeal as something to be scared of, I watched another program recently um, with uh, Adrian Childs where he went around the Mediterranean and he was looking at Christianity, he's a Catholic, and he looked at all these different types of Christianity, and he came up saying, oh, I I really like, well, in fact, he was looking at all different religions, I should say, and so he's saying, oh, I like these ones where they're kind of just, well, you know, they're all good, aren't they? So he met some Catholics and said, you know, and they were sort of like, well you know, all paths lead to God really and, you know, we've got nothing against the Muslims and he met some similar Muslims who said, you know, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you believe, we all believe in the same God and the only people he didn't like were some evangelicals that he came up against because they were saying to him, well you know what, there is only one way to God and, you know, it's Jesus and he's just sort of said oh, I don't know, I found them a bit scary there was just a bit too much passion it's like, so you just want somebody who's kind of Totally lukewarm about everything. You know, the idea that trying as, as little as possible to follow through your convictions to be to be earnest is, is ridiculous. Imagine if, if scientists or inventors or artists did this, you know, I'm I'm not really that bothered about what I'm doing, I'm not really gonna you know, maybe maybe someone else has got the right way to do it and you know, there's lots of ways to invent this thing. It just you know, it doesn't make sense, does it? You're always driven by something, and if it's not the thing that you believe in, then you're, you're being a hypocrite or a fool. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But it's hard to follow that conviction through when the cares of the world come in like those thorns in the parable of the sower that choke our faith. C.S. Lewis says, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted despite your changing moods. Peter talks to someone who was willing to give up everything for Jesus. When the rich man, who who I spoke about earlier, when he, he goes away, Peter's quick to say, well, Jesus, we've given up everything for you. What do we get? And yet, when he's in a corner, when he's under pressure, he denies Jesus and runs away. He isn't yet fully seeing the value of that treasure. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters, he was talking about money, but it's not just about money, although I think for many of us that's, that's a big one. It's our primary safety net in this society. Well, if all else fails, I've got my pension, I've got the house, I've got a steady job. But there are plenty of things that we're happy to sell, if not all we have, certainly a significant part of it for, like respect, status, beauty in youth, love, love safety Isaiah says why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy we can spend our lives seeking nothing more than food and clothes to just get through the day because worry overcomes us and we lose our sense of value but God says seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added people particularly can spend their money seeking fulfilment in romance The media tells us it's the ultimate treasure and we spend our lives trying to find the one. The online dating industry is worth £2 billion globally and in the UK apparently we spent nearly £600 million on Valentine's last year. So here's some typically soppy poems I found online just to uh, give you the nice Valentine's theme. (laughs) All my life I've waited patiently for a goddess like you so beautiful, so lovely Words can't express the way I feel. These feelings towards you are all for real. You're the reason why I go on. There's sick buckets at the back if anyone needs. Eternity can't separate this special bond. This heart of mine is reserved for you. Forever it's yours, this love is true. I'll be your first and you'll be my last. My world, my everything, till my time has passed. I will always love you until the end of time. My love, my sweetheart, my valentine. Uh, Oh, we like that one. I've got another one. (laughs) My Valentine, you're all I want. In you I find joy and delight. You give me everything I need. I'm happiest when you're in sight. I think of you both night and day. I'm drawn to you in pure attraction. When you're not here, I ache for you, for your fulfilling satisfaction. Please be my Valentine and more. Be my life, my world, my all. Together we can be content and share life's pleasures, big and small. Uh. Cherry likes it. I've got one more. Oh, I haven't. In idle dreams of long ago, I imagined my true love, a perfect match, a soulmate, an angel from above. Now you're here, and now I know our love will stay and thrive and grow. If Ali was not out, oh, she's at the back. I'm saying she's thinking. I wish he wrote me poems like that. I prefer something a bit more like this. maybe this one for the recording it says you'll do you annoy me less than anyone else in the whole world now Proverbs 31 says an excellent wife is far more precious than jewels and I'm lucky to have found somebody like that but ultimately she's running away Uh, but <laughs> ultimately, this, this woman in, in Proverbs 21 is, is described as someone who fears the Lord and who gives faithful instruction and speaks with wisdom. And, and genuinely, you know, I have. Um, but a partner who doesn't lead you to the ultimate treasure is of, of no value at all. They can never give you everything you need. And if they're your world, your everything, your soulmate, you're going to be disappointed people are fallible if we've accepted the gospel we do have treasure inside us but we ourselves are jars of clay we're we're fragile and we're not of value on our own and yet the wonderful thing is that God finds value in us I spoke last time about how God calls us his treasure possession and we can look at the parables from another point of view from from the view of, of God's view of us and his actions towards us. So I said last time that God is like a classic car collector who buys a wreck to restore it, or a home buyer who buys a run-down old barn and renovates it. They see what it will become rather than what it is. So God sees value where no one else does, where in fact there is no value until he shapes us. We're more like a, a lump of clay before the potter forms it, or a rock before a sculptor gets to work, it has no value of itself. All the value comes from the artist. And yet God sees us as of great value and he is willing to sell everything he has to acquire us to make us his own treasured possession. We can't read these parables and not think of Christ's sacrifice. You laid aside your majesty, gave up everything for me, the, the old song says. In Romans eight thirty two, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's only when we understand this, when we understand how much God values us and treasures us, how much he paid for us, that we'll see the value of the kingdom, that we'll be willing to sell everything that we have to gain it. Because we'll see that the prize that we're getting is of incomparable value. And that prize, first and foremost, is forgiveness. We can't buy that forgiveness, but we can take hold of the free gift. And we can't take hold of that until we let go of everything else. So if I, if I offer Sophia something that she really wants, it's normally food, chocolate, if she's holding something else... She'll just drop it. She won't even look at it. She'll just grab the other thing that I've given her. And the other, you know, the thing that she had before, it's gone. She's just, it doesn't exist to her anymore. But how often do we just think that actually, no, I can still hold on to that other thing. You know, I don't have to let go of it. One of the things that that Jesus often mentions is families. I've just spent a few days in India uh, counselling students and their parents about university courses. And uh, as with many cultures in India, the, the view of the parents is, is, um, is really important and they have a really strong influence on their, their children. So it's almost like, well, if you get the parents on side, you've, you've won. Um, in China, the whole idea of respect for parents can, can almost border on worship. Children, as, even as grown adults, don't want to disappoint their parents and they feel a duty to do whatever their parents ask of them. And this can be a real bond, particularly if what the parents are asking of you isn't what God is asking. Jesus says, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now, Jesus didn't hate family. Even when he was on the cross in his most anguished and painful moment, he's thinking of his mother and he says to John, just make sure you look after her. So he's not somebody who hated family, but he understood priorities and he wanted his disciples to live for something more. When I think of examples in the Bible of people who really got this, who see the value of the treasure and act accordingly, I think of the sinful woman who breaks the jar of perfume over Jesus' feet in Luke 7. That jar was incredibly expensive. It was perhaps a year's wages. I mean, this woman, possibly she was well off, but for me it's less about the money. It's about the fact that she undergoes this humiliation in front of the host and the Pharisees happily. She's given up her pride and her fear of man because she sees the value of, of, of what Jesus has given her. Unlike Peter, she didn't care who knew that she loved Jesus. Why? And J- Jesus says, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. She knows she's been forgiven much. And she knows the value of that forgiveness, that it's much more than a jar of perfume, and how much more important Jesus' assessment of her is than those people around her, those Pharisees that have stood sneering. When we compare these things money, possessions, status, security, love with what we're being offered, we realize that, as Paul says, they're rubbish. Fortunately for Peter, he gets his chance to learn that lesson later on. So after that betrayal that, that showed up his, his sort of two-mindedness at that point, Jesus catches him on the beach after his resurrection. And, uh, and he speaks to him in a way that, that shows Peter that actually he understands and, and he forgives him. Um, and he recommissions him to go out in a way that says, I know, I understand. I know that you wanted to be willing to die for me. And he even says, look, you're going to get your chance. You know, this is where you're going to go. You are going to die for me. And perhaps that isn't what many of us would want to hear. But I think for Peter, he left knowing that actually he was forgiven. He was restored. And that changed him into someone who stood in front of crowds of thousands looking, frankly, ridiculous. They said they looked drunk. And he didn't care. You know, and ultimately he would give up his life for Jesus. Paul was someone else who got it. He had a lot to lose. He was a Pharisee and um, someone who persecuted Christians. And so people either respected him or feared him. And it was probably a good place to be. He probably felt good. He felt that he had status. and, And yet, when Jesus opened his eyes to the treasure he saw that he was the worst of sinners and he understood the value of of what he was being offered. And so he was able to say, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In real terms, we paid nothing he paid everything. We gave up a pile of rubbish, and God gave us His only Son. As Jesus says to His disciples, You received without paying, give without pay. We love because He first loved us, we treasure because He first treasured us. Maybe we'll never see the full value of the treasure until we reach heaven and experience all of His glorious riches, that inheritance that's there. For now, we might just see the top layer of the jewels. But don't you want to keep digging? If you're just hearing the first thuds of your spade hitting the top of the chest, keep digging. (laughs) Abide in Christ. Dwell on his beauty and his great worth. Get into God's word and understand all that he's done for you and all that he is. Speak it and sing it back to yourself in prayer and praise. I'm speaking to myself here as much as to anyone else, believe me. And God's not trying to hide it from us. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants you to have that treasure. He wants you to buy that field. But you have to give up on the backup plan. So after he says that, he says, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? What do you value the most? Is it your job? Your bank balance? Your family? Your friends at school? What people think of you? Are you truly sold out for Jesus? None of us can do it on our own. None of us can change our desires. None of us can have Peter and Paul's commitment or that of uh, the widow that gave her last two pennies or the men in these parables who sold everything that they have. We can't work that up unless we have a revelation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. His great value, how much he treasures us and how much he gave everything to make us his own. And that revelation comes through Christ by the Holy Spirit. So whether you're still pacing the field, looking for the treasure, whether you're trying to weigh up the value of what you've seen and decide whether to make that purchase, or whether maybe you've been holding something back, there's more for you, and all you have to do is come and ask. Let's pray.